Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. The FAA has cleared Boeing's 737 MAX to fly again in the United States. That happened yesterday, some 20 months after the airplane's worldwide grounding due to two fatal crashes. You will will remember those incidents, which killed 346 people, led to the resignation of top executives from Boeing um, and others. The criminal investigation that followed um, and a huge loss uh, for Boeing. Here's my question. Um, are you going to be one of the first people to get back on a Boeing 737 MAX? Are, do you even know when you get on an airplane uh, what kind of airplane it is? I, I think people are going to start asking the question. And I ultimately think it's a good conversation to have about faith. Faith is, um, when we talk about it from a Christian worldview, faith is that which we place in Jesus Christ um, unto salvation. But faith has some broad definitions in the culture. And so I do think this is an opportunity to talk about faith. I'm going to put my faith in the pilot. I'm going to put my faith in the other passengers. I'm going to put my faith in air, um, uh, those, uh, hey, Paul, what are those people called who, you know, make sure planes don't fly into one another up there in the air? Air traffic air controllers? controllers, yes. Yeah. I'm putting my faith in them. I'm putting my faith in the satellites that help keep track of where all the airplanes are. Uh, That's a lot of faith. And, yeah, I'm putting my faith in the manufacturer of the airplane, in this case, Boeing. Just think it's an opportunity for us to talk about faith uh, with others who may be less inclined to have a conversation about the Christian faith, but certainly um, could be provoked to think about all all of those in whom they put their faith each and every day. Okay, um, and then this I thought was a fascinating headline for Christians to consider today. Uh, Cindy McCain, among others, is going to be speaking today in a digital summit that's a part of a nationwide push to establish a White House Office of Bereavement Care. I want you to just think about that for just a moment. The push is for the establishment of a White House Office of Bereavement Care. The goal is to help families cope with um, those 250,000 families as of today in America coping with a loss related to COVID, um, but also those families who lose individuals due to gun violence or opioids or suicide. The list is actually fairly long. Uh, And I want you to just pause for a moment and consider that that is a push for the U.S. government to fill yet another role that I believe rightly belongs to the church. And so if the church has moved out of the space of bereavement care for families in our communities, then the government is going to move in. And so I, I would say that this is an opportunity for the church to reassert herself and her rightful role in families and communities across the country. 
if there are people pushing for the establishment of a government office for bereavement care, in this case, a White White House Office of Bereavement Care, um, then there are almost certainly people who need bereavement care. And and let's consider that, you know, we are as Christians and as churches and local communities actually much more well positioned to address those concerns and needs at a local level than is the government at a national level. So just thought I would lift that up to your awareness um, today. All right, we got a full we got a full plate today, a full docket. Ben Johnson is waiting in the wings. He and I are going to lead off with a conversation about whether or not you're willing to pay um, pay taxes um, related to working from home. Uh, yep, some people think that is uh, that's an idea. Well, it's an idea. We're going to talk about how good it is. Next up here on Mornings with Carmen. Ben Johnson joins me again from the Acton Institute in what I am um, maybe going to be led to start calling the worst idea of the week. <laughs> well, then uh, I feel like good... I feel like right when we talk about things, we are generally talking about things where somebody has proposed a really bad idea, and we are talking uh, talking about from a Christian worldview um, why it's a bad idea and how it's ultimately destructive. So, what's this week's the wor- worst idea of the week you've seen so far? I, I thought the uh, the worst idea of the week was having me on radio. <laughs> no man, that's my that's my secret genius. That that's not a bad idea. That's a that's a secret genius, man. The the worst idea, other than that, that I've seen uh, this past week is Deutsche Bank, which uh, has come out with an idea for what it calls a privilege tax. Mm. And the idea is that everyone who works from home, who has an option from working from home, would be taxed five percent of their income every day they stay at home instead of going to the office. Mm. Now. Uh, it doesn't apply to absolutely everyone who stays at home. There are some terms and conditions that apply, but essentially they say that if you would like to work from home and you have the option of working from an office, if you choose to stay at home, then you've got to pay about an average of $10 a day in order to do it. Then they're going to take that money and give it to people who don't have the option of working from home and who make less than $30,000 a year. They'll give them uh, about uh, $1,500 per year. So uh, just a, a little over $100 a month to everyone who doesn't have that option. That's your privilege, uh, your privilege of staying at home. The justification seems a little bit strange, uh, to say the least. First of all, why would you tax people for working uh, when, you know, right now that's the only way a lot of people are able to work? Uh, during this panic, uh, during this pandemic, uh, a lot of people have, have only got the option of working from home because their employers won't let them come in. Uh, But then second of all, a lot of people have found that they can work from home and be even more productive. Productivity actually arose for people who stayed at home uh, during this pandemic and who are working that way. If you can be more productive and stay at home and not emit fossil fuels and clog up roads and things like that, and maybe even save a little bit of money on your, your lunch break, why would that be any of Deutsche Bank's business? So that's the idea. They want to raise about $45 billion dollars. 
Uh, it's a bad idea for a whole host of reasons. Uh, there, one of them is just very simple, which is Occam's razor here. There's a simpler solution, an easier solution than all this. Deutsche Bank, even though it's a foreign bank, received $350 billion in bailouts from U.S. taxpayers during the Great Recession. If it would just refuse to take bailouts from the American taxpayer, it would raise eight times more money than the tax that it's generously offering to tax Americans. And then it could give its own money to all these poor workers. Uh, for some reason, Deutsche Bank's a lot more generous with your money than it is with theirs. Okay, so I think I know the answer to the question. Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, and J.P. Morgan are the three largest commercial uh, mortgage backers in the country. So I'm pretty sure this has to do with the fact that they know that their skyscrapers are going to be empty uh, if people don't physically go back to the workplace. So this is a, I think this is a follow-the-money scheme. They, they recognize that if there's not some way to drive people back to physical um, physical offices, they have a, a commercial real estate disaster on their hands. That's my own personal view. You're thinking like an economist, and you're dead right. You know, there's been this I got up early. exodus. Yeah. I, I got up early, yeah. Yeah. I thought oh, I maybe think, you stayed at think... Holiday Inn Express. But uh, yeah, <laughs> no, you, I mean, you got it. It's, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, there's been an exodus out of the cities, which is also where the most expensive real estate is. And they, as you say, they own these skyscrapers. And if no one is going in, if they've decided that they can live in Connecticut or West Virginia or uh, suburban areas and not have to drive in, not have to uh, deal with all of the smog and pollution and, and congestion and everything else – and still uh, still be as productive or more productive, that's only a win for the economy unless you happen to be the one holding that mortgage, uh, like the way that they inflated the mortgage during the bubble that led to the Great Recession, where they took the bailout in the first place. Yeah, follow the money. All right, we, um, we have to take a very brief break. When we come back... Uh, Ben Johnson and I are going to talk about a few fiscal cliffs, um, one, of, one of which you heard about this week, and that is the student loan cliff. That one made the news, but there are others as well. We're going to have those conversations uh, next up on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we are getting a, a lot of support, Ben, to just start calling the segment um, this week's worst idea. So I just uh, thought I'd let you know that might be uh, that might be sticky. That might just be something that sticks. Tell us about the student loan cliff and other cliffs that are uh, quickly approaching for millions of Americans. Well, there are several, as you mentioned, and uh, the student loan cliff is probably the uh, the most pronounced because it's uh, it's in the news quite a bit. You know, there's $1.6 trillion in student loan debt out there. Uh, it comes up to approximately uh, $35,500 per person uh, who, is, who has taken out a loan. It's, it, that's the average. And uh, right now they're in deferment. No one has to pay that back until the end of the year because of the COVID pandemic. If, if the government says you can't go out and work and a lot of places are closed because of that, it, there's an artificial recession that has been created by the government, by government policy, and so the government is trying to ameliorate the uh, the effects of that policy by saying that if you've been cost a job because of this, you don't have to pay back student loan debt. However, that expires at the end of the year. Uh, at the same time, of course, there are federal unemployment programs. Uh, there's mortgage forgiveness. Uh, there is also uh, eviction 
forgiveness right now. There, there's an, an eviction policy that, that people cannot be evicted, uh, and all of that will run out again toward the end of this year. Uh, at least that's how it is on paper. I'm not too concerned about, uh, about what will happen at the end of the year because I have no doubt the one thing that politicians are very good at is extending government programs. Uh, Ronald Reagan once said, the closest thing you'll ever see to eternal life in this, on this earth is a government program. So I, I think that that will be extended uh, at least as long as is needed, and, and probably if history is anything to go by, even longer. But uh, the issue here is so much that, A, there are 12 million people that this affects just on, on uh, the unemployment program, uh, millions more on student loan, and, and millions again when it comes to eviction and foreclosure. So when you look at all of those, all of those people who are affected, if someone isn't paying uh, their, their rent or their mortgage, and the government is saying you can't evict them, then the government's going to have to step in and pay the people who are the mortgage holders, or the mortgage holders are going to end up uh, bearing the burden for this themselves. There's only three ways that the government gets money. Either it can tax everybody else to, to come up with that, which takes money out of the productive sector of the economy, and uh, it, it's, it's a, a, a net loss for us, or it can borrow and we're already in massive debt. We have $3 trillion this year in debt. I'm old enough to remember when the entire federal deficit was $3 trillion, when Ronald Reagan was leaving office. So uh, we've had that much this year alone under one of his Republican uh, successors. And you know, Or you can print the money, in which case the prices go up and everyone's money is worth less. It's not worthless, but it is worth less. So all of those things have a real cost, and they are borne by... Uh, the people who are putatively trying to be helped by this. So uh, there, you've got some some fiscal issues facing us, and none of the solutions are very good. Uh, really, the main solution that we need to uh, to look at is what we can do this time around to avoid a complete and total shutdown of the economy and instead have targeted shutdowns uh, for for people who are most at risk and get people to actually do their do uh, something that's good and helpful, like wearing a mask if it's going to help you, socially distancing, using common sense steps. Uh, if people would simply follow common sense, uh, then I think a lot of this would be taken care of. Okay, then we could also call this segment Uncommon Sense. <laughs> I'm just I'm just working with some ideas today. All right, so because I do think that You're that is fine. also what you and I talk about, common sense that has become all too uncommon. Okay, Um when we are talking about the ways in which the federal government pays for things, um, if it cannot raise, uh, you know, raise its own support through taxation, it just prints money. Talk with us a little bit about uh, the U.S. federal budget and, in particular, the um, the budget deficit. Yeah, well, uh, so the budget deficit, uh, as I say, this year alone has we've already racked up more than three trillion dollars. Uh, if that's uh, for crazy example, money. I mean, it's just like, yeah, I don't even, I don't, I, I mean, how big would a stack of a trillion dollars be? Like, I, I need a visual. I mean, that's hard to, I mean, that's hard to fathom and imagine. But they're printing it. Yeah, uh, multiple times to the moon and back. So mm. uh, it's, it, it's insane that kind of money. But uh, uh, you know, and and we've racked it up so quickly. Uh, so, so uh, you know, as, as I say, not that long ago, the entire federal de deficit was uh, was three trillion. Everything from George Washington until. Uh, Ronald Reagan left office was $3 trillion. We've run that much up this year. Now, a lot of that is because we don't have the growth. But if, if there's a theory called modern monetary theory, which says that essentially you can print as much money as you like, and it doesn't hurt the economy in any way because you can offset it. 
Uh, the fact is there's no silver bullet. There's nothing you can do in the economy that doesn't affect everyone in one way or another. Uh, this is one area where Martin Luther King Jr. in his in his brilliance really does come to bear. He wrote in his letter from the Birmingham jail that we're all tied up in an inescapable web of mutuality. And the economy illustrates that so beautifully because anything that happens to one person trickles around. It doesn't just trickle down, it trickles up. It trickles around to everyone. Uh, if your neighbor loses his job, that hurts your economy and that's going to hurt you. So uh, it's true throughout. Uh, throughout, If you print trillions upon trillions of dollars, uh, what you're going to end up doing is raising the cost of everything else. And then the people who are really hurt are the ones who did their due diligence and saved. Now their savings is essentially worthless. Uh, and you know, when prices go up, the people who pay the most are particularly older people who saved their money. And now uh, their savings uh, doesn't buy, it doesn't have the purchasing power that it once did because of this massive quantitative easing or inflation. Okay, and then one more story um, that I would just love for you to even just tell it as a story. What's going on in Portsmouth with the police chief? This is craziness. Portsmouth, Virginia, <laughs> The uh, I believe she's the second uh, African-American female police chief in the history of the state of Virginia. She just lost her job on Monday. Her name is Angela Green. And as you know, you and I talked about this yesterday. Lo and behold, she was actually interviewed on Fox News last night. But uh, we were there first. We saw it first. But um, unfortunately, Portsmouth uh, was one of the cities where uh, there was there was a uh, statue toppling in July. They decapitated a statue, pulled down the statue of a Confederate soldier. But unfortunately, it struck a middle-aged black man in the head as it fell off its pedestal. Uh, the injury left the man in a coma, caused him to flatline twice on his way to the hospital. They had to remove part of his skull because his brain was swelling to the point that it would kill him if they didn't do this emergency surgery. Uh, he's still in therapy as of this week to learn how to walk and talk again. One of the people who was a ringleader in this was a state senator. Uh, she said she had cut a deal with uh, the city manager not to be arrested for what they were doing. Angela Green said, this is illegal and I don't care who you talk to. Uh, we, we're going to press charges if you proceed. And then, you know, lo and behold, a man was was injured. So she pressed charges uh, against the state senator and everyone she could identify who had injured this man. All the charges were dropped by the prosecutor, and city officials fired her on Monday. So, I mean, what we're looking at here is a case where someone who is well-connected was able to evade the uh, importance of, of the law, to avoid equal justice under the law, because she had ties at City Hall. And the one person who paid the price was the one who was trying to make sure that no one got by based on privilege or their connections, but that equal justice and equal consequences were applied to equal actions, regardless of the title in front of your name. She, uh, Angela Green says she's going to sue the city. I hope that Portsmouth pays so dearly that they never again threaten equal justice on behalf of the politically well-connected. Well, and those other people need to be held accountable. Like there's, there's two, in my view, there's two sides to this story. And, um, well, there's probably multiple sides to the story. And not only is this police chief um, wrongfully, pretty obviously wrongfully terminated um, for doing her job, for sticking to her sworn oath, for protecting her own citizens and community. Um, but there is, you know, there's something that stinks a little higher up in terms of the political system. And um, and those people ought to be held accountable, too. So thank you for bringing us that story. Um, always a joy to talk with you in this Worst idea of the week or uncommon sense segment. I don't know. I'm going to start floating those out there and see what sticks. Love talking with you, man. Thank you so much.
You were on fire this morning. Thank you, Carly. Mm. God bless. All right, that's Ben Johnson. You can find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Read the blog in particular on Deutsche Bank, and I'm betting he's got one forthcoming on the Portsmouth Police Chief. So you can find him at Acton dot O-R-G. We'll be right back. All right, on September the 6th, 1620, a group of people departed Plymouth, England, on a boat called the Mayflower. They arrived at Cape Cod on the 9th of November, 1620. It was a 66-day voyage. Now, from there, the things that you think you know about those people and why they made the voyage and what happened here after they landed um, might be more myth and fictionalized nationalism than it actually is verifiable truth. And so in the lead up to Thanksgiving uh, on this anniversary of the landing of the Mayflower Pilgrims, we're going to talk with Derek Wilson about the book, The Mayflower Pilgrims, Sifting Fact from Fable. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. are you at asking questions? Have you mastered the art of drawing someone out of his or her shell? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. There's a skill that every parent needs to learn. It's the simple art form of asking questions. Thoughtful questions have a remarkable way of getting teens to think outside the box. They make a young person evaluate what's really going on inside. And when asked a thoughtful question, a teen feels valued. So mom, dad, do you want to connect with your son or daughter today? Are you ready to show them you value them? Try asking a good question. Not a yes or no question, but one that really makes them think. Then wait for the answer and listen. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to ParentingTodaysTeens.org. That's ParentingTodaysTeens.org. We're going to evaluate even that statement that comes to us in terms of what we think we know about the Mayflower and those who sailed upon it. The book is The Mayflower Pilgrims, Sifting Fact from Fable. Derek Wilson is uh, is the author. He's a renowned historian, author of many books. Uh, he is one of the U.K.'s leading authors of history and historical fiction. Uh, some of his books that you might well recognize uh, would be Out of the Storm, The Life of Martin Luther, the Brief History of the English Reformation, Religion, Politics, and Fear, Mrs. Luther and Her Sisters, The Women of the Reformation, uh, and just a couple of years ago, Superstition and Science, Mystics, Skeptics, Truth Seekers, and Charlatans. Today's book, The Mayflower Pilgrims, Sifting Fact from Fable. Derek Wilson, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Oh, nice to be with you. Well, it's it's lovely to have you. Um, so there are a lot uh, a lot of things that Americans think they know about the Mayflower and those who sailed upon it. Um, and you approach this exercise of sifting fact from fable, um, really much like a forensic detective might um, examine 
something that has happened and try to sort out the truth from all of the things that people have described over time. How do you do that? What is the process at this point of looking back some 400 years to try to discover who these people really were, how they lived, and what really happened? I think there's something we need to to, um, distinguish between history and, and folklore. History helps us to understand the past. Folklore helps us to feel good about ourselves in the present. And, um, you know, uh, folklore often simplifies, romanticizes, and um, we historians, I suppose, are killed as we come along and say, well, perhaps it wasn't quite like that, and perhaps these people weren't quite the the, 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 the heroes and the heroines and the purest, pure people we thought they were, you know, but... They were you know, ordinary men and women like us, and we can learn something from them. And history says we, there are things we need to, to know when we're, when we're thinking about any individual or any group of people in the past. The first is, where did they come from? What was their background? What did, you know, how did they get to where they were? And the second is, what was the world like in which they lived? Because the world they lived in is very different from the world we live in. So I'm um, just to take one example. I mean, sometimes said, sometimes thought. I think that um, uh, the pilgrims were people fleeing from persecution. Well, I mean, if your government or my government today said you must believe such and such, you must be Episcopalian, you must be Methodist, you must be Presbyterian, or whatever, we would rightly, rightly say this is an attack on our freedom. Uh, we, we, we resent this. We're not going to be told what we believe. And we, 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 we believe that the state is persecuting us. Things were very, very different in the mid, in, in, in the mid to late 16th and 17th century um, when, um, for example, uh, England was at war with Spain and the government had a right to expect that, her, that the citizens would be united uh, in, their, um, in, their, in their fight with Spain. They only had to look across the channel to see what was happening in France where the wars of religion were in progress and Protestants and, and, uh, and Catholics were fighting each other, massacring each other, um, uh, uh, assassinating uh, each other. It was an appalling time, and, and any government would have said, well, we don't want our, our nation to fall into that sort of a state. So um, I just wanted to, make, to try and make clear that that was the kind of world they lived in, and we have to need, need to understand them in relation to that world. Yeah, I I found the um, the eighth chapter of the book really particularly fascinating on this particular point. So maybe introduce people, take us to the East Midland um, countries of Europe and what you describe as the Midlands nursery. And then if you'll indulge me, um, my mom was fond of saying when we were growing up, you are who you were when. And by that, she meant that we were the products of time and place and circumstance and opportunity um, and products of generations of Indiana farm families um, and our lineage, you know, through these English and German immigrants who became the Ludwig Ringwald Benefiel Fowlers, right? And so, uh, like, when I think about who I am and how I'm wired, I'm pretty sure my people were nomadic and adventuresome. Um, The one time that I visited England, I left thinking to myself, I know why my people left here. Like I so I I do. There's something to this. Like there's some there's something to this. So talk about the East Midland countries of Europe. Um, The the chapter is the Midlands nursery. 
Yes, the Midlands, uh, the Midland counties of, of England, um, Nottinghamshire, Lincolnshire, that area, um, were those areas were, were one of the areas uh, which was most affected by the um, Protestant winds blowing across from the from the continent. Um, that was because they were they were in touch from um, uh, with uh, with France and, and and the Netherlands particularly uh, through through trade, and so um, books and ideas uh, spread most easily in that, in that part of the world. And uh, what uh, happened was that people who who uh, believed um, that certain of uh, the certain groups are on the continent had a greater understanding of Christian truth than a lot of people in England, and particularly the the church in the official church in England, um, they wanted to purify the national church. So so we call them Puritans. Uh, and they didn't like the way the clergy dressed. They didn't like uh, some of the rituals in the services. They didn't like the the way that um, the church was um, governed itself. They thought that wasn't in line with the New Testament, and so on. Various things they disapproved of. Now you can do you can do uh, one of three things if you disapprove of, or you could do one of three things if you disapproved of what the the, the, the church what the your national church was. You could grin and bear it, you could try and change it, or you could emigrate and go somewhere else where you'd be more comfortable. And that, that last group, the emigres, were the smallest group, or we call them separatists. They wanted to, they, they don't want nothing to do with the Church of England. We will separate and we will go somewhere else where, um, where we can still be British, we can do English. And they, they clung furiously to their Englishness. Um, but where we can worship as we want to worship. So we, so this group, um, a particular group, uh, we tend to look upon as the, the founders of the Pilgrim Fathers, um, which met in a, in a village called Scrooby, um, were just one group of several groups that eventually... Um, made their way across the, the North Sea to the Netherlands, where there was a more where there was a Protestant uh, society, and where it was more broad-minded than um, what was happening in England. So, uh, you, and, and it's um, and it's because uh, the, you know, I'll, I'll start that again. The, the, the Scrooby settlement, um, the Scrooby group of um, of uh, pure, separate or, or Puritan Christians um, were uh, just one group, and, and out, but because two or three members of that group became very prominent uh, among the among the pilgrims, and then in the in the settlement um, eventually in America, people tend to tend to take them as the the typical pilgrims mm. they were you know, they were just they were just some of them and they were quite a, a very group of people so um we're going to yeah, absolutely. We're going to continue this conversation with Derek Wilson, um, author of The Mayflower Pilgrims, Sifting Fact from Fable, in just a moment. Um, during the break, I want you as a listener to consider 
What do you think you know? What do you think you know um, about the pilgrims, um, particularly those who came uh, on the voyage of the Mayflower? And is it possible that some of the things that you think you know are not historically accurate? That's actually the conversation we're seeking to have today. More up next on Mornings with Carmen. All right, as Christians, we have this understanding of being pilgrims, um, people who are really never fully at home uh, here and in the here and now, uh, looking forward to a place that is not made by human hands um, and eternal in the heavens. But we do live in the midst of this world as representatives of that king and that kingdom. And so when we talk about the nation states in which we live, the places and times Uh, assigned to us by a sovereign God, we then look back over over the course of time at how our nations came to be. And certainly for the United States of America, a seminal event, in fact, maybe the seminal event, is the arrival of the Mayflower Pilgrims. Joining me now, uh, Derek Wilson, just just a fantastic historian and prolific author, and we're talking today about his book, The Mayflower Pilgrims, Sifting Fact from Fable, you know, really trying to look back some 400 years and get to know the 102 men, women, and children who made that transatlantic voyage in 1620. Um, Derek, I, maybe maybe help us see one of the distortions that we, what's, what is something that we think we know about these people and, uh, and this period of time that is simply inaccurate? Well, I think just one point you just just mentioned. You, you referred to the 102 pilgrims, but of course they they weren't all religious religious immigrants. Um, uh, only um, uh, numbers vary, but only about 35 of them were actually um, we can associate with uh, the um, people who are coming for religious reasons. This was. Um, this voyage was just one of several voyages that were um, planned and executed at this particular time because England was was playing catch-up with countries like Spain and Portugal and, to a certain extent, Holland um, <clears throat> in the col- col- colonizing race. Um, we had sort of fallen behind um, the the attempts uh, to uh, re- no, to to plant colonies in other lands, but now we were in catch-up. And um, uh, companies like the Virginia Company were, were set up to um, to organize this. James the James I claimed a great chunk of the American seaboard and said, right, this is now English territory, and we will plant people there to, uh, to go and the land and, um, and make it prosper. Uh, and people went, and people, um, the, the company was you know, recruited any, anybody that they could find all for all sorts of reasons. And so, um, you know, we had a, a great hodgepodge of people people who were uh, landless younger sons, people who were jailbirds, um, people who were, uh, just hadn't managed to be a success, people who were, who were deeply in debt, as well as people who were, were leaving for. 
reasons of principle. And so, you know, it's this great mixture of, of members of people that, that come across, and just a few of them were what we would now think of as the pilgrims. Yeah, that's so, fascinating. That's the, the Yeah, the landless, I mean, when you describe the group of people, um, you know, who we might all have thought were fleeing religious persecution, religious immigrants, you know, in reality, you know, maybe a third of them fall into that category, at least in this particular voyage. But these landless younger sons, the jailbirds and the people deeply in debt, we do not tend to think of like, oh, yeah, that's that's the crew. Um, that's the that's the group of people who arrives to uh, to settle this brave new world. Um, but it's not surprising. I mean, when we if we were to spend much time really thinking about it, it doesn't surprise us that that would be true. Those would be the people who would be, you know, the go west young man um, folks. They're looking for a a new opportunity, a literal literal new life. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and but first of all, they went looking for it um, uh, in in the Netherlands because um, in the, nor- the northern Netherlands was in revolt against the, the Spanish the Spanish overlords and establishing a a new independent Protestant state. And uh, they too wanted um, people. Uh, sympathetic people to come and settle in their land to help build up industry and trade and so on. So uh, a lot of people went from England there, and again, some of them out of religious motivation, and others because they thought, well, I'm not making much of a success of my life in England, perhaps I can do better somewhere else. Um, so you know, like all like all Spanish uh, immigration, if you decided that um, perhaps you might go and live in Australia or somewhere, you would weigh up all the pros and cons, and you would think, why am I making this decision? Um, how is life going to be better there? Um, why do I want to do it? Do I really want to do it? Do I want my children to go out there? And so on and so forth. And, and it was exactly the same for people then. I don't know, awfully, tremendously mixed motives. And that's why, or was one of the reasons why, uh, the, the initial move to, to Holland didn't turn out very well, because um, people found that, uh, that Holland wasn't the nirvana they hoped it was going to be, uh, that some, some of them uh, were very successful in, in business, some of them established, established uh, good communities, others couldn't do so well. Some of them eventually came back to England, some of them uh, migrated to America, some of them stayed in, stayed in, in Holland. So it's, um, you know, it, it's that movement of, of people for all sorts of reasons that we have to try and get our heads around. And that I think it's useful to do that because then we realize that these were people like us. Uh, we, we can spend a lot of time thinking about are we people like them, and then pick on the uh, the more heroic aspects of of, um, of our ancestors and say yes, we are people like that. But look at the other way around; they are people like us, a mixture of a mixture of heroes and heroines, villains and ne'er do wells. Um, uh, uh, and that it seems to me is more realistic way of looking at and evaluating our past. Uh, absolutely. I also think it helps us um, maybe be more gracious and open to the realities around the world today in terms of the motivations of people who desire to immigrate. 
There, there are people yeah. who have religious motivations to leave where they are and seek freedom somewhere else. They are being persecuted for their beliefs in a particular place. And there are people who, who want to immigrate for economic reasons. Um, they want a new opportunity. They want, um, they want the promise of a new place, the, the opportunity of a new place. Maybe they are today landless younger sons um, or people deeply in debt. I mean, on and on and on and on. So I do think that looking at this history and understanding these people and their motivations and the time period in which they lived and the places from which they came um, helps us see ourselves. And I, I trust that is, that's kind of your goal. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've achieved it. Um, I'm, uh, sorry? You have achieved it. Well, so I, I missed that. You have achieved it. Well what done. Thank you. you... <laughs> well, <laughs> Well, it's a delight. I got to let right. you go because we are out of time today. Um, but Derek Wilson, what what a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with you. Um, your your writing career has been prolific. You have brought history into view for us. Um, it, particularly, I mean, I, one of my favorite books um, that you wrote is Mrs. Luther and Her Sisters, Women in the Reformation. That's just one of my favorites. Thank you for bringing people into view for us to see um, who have been sometimes written out of history and sometimes whose histories have been rewritten by uh, by myths over time. I just I appreciate the clarity with which you are helping us see who we are by helping us see the histories from which we have come. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, the book opens with a really provocative question. Uh, but a question that um, I think no one at the time would have even asked because they lived in the midst of Christendom. Is there such a thing as a Christian country? And if so, what would it look like? That is the opening question of the Mayflower Pilgrims and worth our consideration. Here's my answer. A Christian country um, could exist as a nation of Christians. Like that's the only possibility. A Christian country could exist as a nation of Christians. Is there such a thing? No, there is not. Uh, If there were such a thing, what would it look like? Um, It would be a nation of Christians manifesting in our common life a provisional demonstration of the kingdom of heaven. Things on earth would be as they are in heaven, aligned with the principles and practices that Jesus describes in all of his, the kingdom of heaven is like parables, making manifest the character of Jesus in the world that he so loves. And it is our responsibility to do that as ambassadors of that king and that kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. That's what we're seeking to do each and every day. We've got another hour up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.